Last week we looked at uh, verses 1 through 6 there of chapter 4, and, and we looked at the word resolve, that uh, we would arm ourselves with the same pur- purpose as Christ, and that we would be done with sin, that he who has suffered in the flesh is done with sin, that we would resolve to stand firm in God's grace, to stand firm on His Word, even if it means that we suffer for it. And this week uh, obviously builds upon that. One of the challenges of preaching through books is you, you, you have to make sure we build upon these things, that these are not just individual little cliched sayings or a bunch of truths all wrapped up in one. Peter is writing to one end, to one purpose, and the end of that is to stand firm in God's grace. Stand firm in His grace. And last week, as we said, the word was resolve. And this week, we will build upon that. And and I want to illustrate it a couple of weeks ago. And hopefully this helps formulate a foundation, a a picture of not only the resolve of last week, but also what we look at uh, this week in verses 7 through 11. And hopefully it will connect it and build a foundation. But a couple of weeks ago at soccer practice, as is the norm in the afternoons in Tampa, uh, a storm came, and it's five o'clock, and we're practicing, and lightning is comes up, and lightning is popping everywhere, and everyone left the practice facility. It's raining, and yet third and fourth grade girls, Team Japan, still practicing, still practicing. We stayed, and when you hear that, when you hear that. If you, if you were to look out and see us practicing in the middle of that, it would be real easy to think that, that that guy is an idiot. That guy is careless. He's reckless. And those, those, those may be true. Not on that day. But, but you'd say, look, there's lightning everywhere. Get out of there. You're, you're, you're jeopardizing the safety of those girls. But here's, where, here's why I could stay. Here's why we could continue practicing in spite of what we saw, in spite of what we heard, in spite of what we felt, in spite of what others were doing. Idlewild has a, has a, a lightning detection system. It's called ThorGuard. And it is constantly monitoring the weather conditions. And it's programmed to give you a 20-minute head start of any, it'll tell you in advance, 20 minutes, when lightning is going to go from cloud to ground within five miles of, of, of Idlewild's campus. That's its job. That's what it's programmed to do. It detects lightning. Why, why could I stay in practice? Why, why could I continue to practice with those girls free from worry in spite of what I saw, free from worry that I was compromising their safety, because, because I know that machine. Because I trust it. Because I know it well. To, to add to the story, and I don't, say this, I don't say this to brag. I'm saying this because, to help you with the story. I used to be the recreation pastor at Idlewild. And I bought that machine. I researched it. I studied it. I called lots of other places that had it. I talked to the engineers. I talked to the installers. 
I know that system has a 100% accuracy. 100%. Never mind, I spent, I spent eight years there as the recreation pastor, and I trusted that machine every single day to help me make decisions. It never failed. You see what I'm saying? It had proved itself to be trustworthy. Everyone, listen, everyone knows that machine is there. Everyone's been told about it. Everyone has access to it. Everyone can use it and be blessed by it. But listen to me, not everybody trusts it. You know why? Because they don't have the history with it. They haven't seen it work. They haven't trusted it and seen it work. Not, not, it's there, but not everyone, listen, not everybody had the resolve to allow their actions to be shaped by it. Faith. I, I thought about that, how that relates to, to us and our resolve and the word. Listen, everyone in here knows, that, everyone in here knows something of this word. Everyone in here knows that, that there's a God. But do you know him well enough to trust him? Do, do you, have you experienced him enough? Have you walked with him long enough? Have you, have you walked with others long enough to, that you would allow your, your, your actions to be shaped by it? That when everything around you says to the contrary, that you can, that you can obediently trust it. Why? Because, because he's faithful. Because, because when you read the word, you see he has a history of never not being faithful. It's not just simply about knowing that the machine is sitting up there on the roof of the concession stand. It's trusting that it does its job. It's trusting that it's going to do its job. No matter what your flesh says, no matter what your feelings say, no matter what your heart says, hey, no matter what do the other teams say. Do, do you allow, I mean, do, do you have a resolve, Christian? Do you have a resolve that, that shapes your behavior? Are you certain? Are you certain of the character of God? Are you certain of the word that you can stand firm in grace? Not simply knowing about God and His grace, but allowing it to shape your lives. Again, everyone knows that machine is sitting up on the roof of the concession stand. It's available to everybody. I don't have some secret thing on my phone that I used to get the emails. I don't get those anymore. I don't want to kick me out. Do you trust it? Do, do you allow your life to be shaped by it? Look, the reason, why, the reason why people hear lightning, again, there's wisdom to that, I get it, but the reason why people saw lightning, heard thunder, and saw the dark clouds, and they, they left is because they don't trust it. To their own defense, they don't have a history that I'm just fortunate enough to have where, again, for 14 years, I've seen the machine do its job. For 14 years, I've seen it be faithful. When, when we first installed the machine, listen to me, there were times where I'm fretting. Everything looked awful. I'm like, is that thing working? Is it working? And guess what? Proved to be faithful. 
And over time, you know what? I began less and less to doubt the machine and more and more to trust the machine. Why? And the more and more I saw it be faithful. The more and more I allowed it to shape my decisions. Romans 15, 4 says this, Whatever was written in previous times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance of the Scriptures we might have hope. Do, do, do we understand what we rob ourselves of when we don't read the Scriptures? Do you understand what we're robbing ourselves of when we don't go to the Old Testament? And we're robbing ourselves of hope. It says, through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We see for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, God was what? He was faithful. We're robbing ourselves in the encouragement of the resolve that in spite of chaos, in spite of things looking the other, looking opposite of what, we, what, what the Word says, in spite of everything, what others are doing and all that, the Word stands here to give us hope, to give us a resolve. Our, our resolve is not in circumstances. It's not in what other people say or do. Our resolve is in the character of a God who has promised Himself to us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, he says in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Do we trust that? Do we allow our lives to be shaped by that? The better, listen, in the same way, and I hope the illustration made sense, in the same way, I, because I knew the machine a little better than others, I'm able to trust the machine. Because I have a longer history of walking under the, the shepherding of that machine, I can trust the machine. It's the same way with the word. The longer we walk under God's umbrella and trust Him and shape our lives, and the more, the more times we have resolve in spite of what our feelings say and what culture says, and we stand firm in grace, the, the more we trust God. The easier it is next time. And, and that's what Peter is saying here. And what he says this week is that, that that resolve has got to shape our lives. We must realize, he says, that we're living, that's your main point, in the last stage of a divinely appointed process. That Listen, the outcome is assured. The outcome has already been determined. And that's got to shape, that reality has got to shape our lives. Stand firm in grace. No matter what you face, no matter what your feelings say, no matter what the world says, stand firm in grace. Our future is assured. The outcome is determined. One day Christ is coming back. Stand firm in that, but, but allow that to shape how you live. Moment by moment. Don't just say it. Allow it moment by moment. Even in that practice, listen, even in that practice, there was lightning popping. I'd kind of be like, I hope that thing's working. But I had been assured by Scott that it works. Trust it. We have Old Testament saint after Old Testament saint after Old Testament saint. We have New Testament saint after New Testament saint after New Testament saint. And you know what they're saying to you and I in the Bible? Hey, Chris, it works. Hey, Chris, he's faithful. You know what Abraham is saying to you? 
He's faithful. You know what Isaac is saying to you? He's faithful. You know what Jacob is saying to you? He's faithful. You know what Joseph is saying to you? He's faithful. You know what Ezra and Nehemiah are saying to you today? He's faithful. You know what the psalmist is saying to you? He's faithful. You know what David is saying to you? He's faithful. You know what Isaiah is saying to you? He's faithful. You know what Jeremiah is saying to you? He's faithful. You know what Habakkuk is saying to you today? He's faithful. You know what Amos is saying to you? He's faithful. If we don't know that, if we don't know those, if we don't know the word, we're, we're robbing ourselves of the encouragement of these guys. We're robbing ourselves of the encouragement of their experiences with God, which are not unlike your experiences with God. And we're robbing ourselves of the reality that God is faithful and to be shaped. To be shaped, to allow our lives to be shaped by the faithfulness of God. And, and Peter is no different. Peter, again, to the end all things, to the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Listen, what he's saying is this. In light of the fact that the end is near, our future is assured by God himself. And, and you are, you are to, you're commanded to shape how you think. First of all, shape how you think based on the fact that there is a certain and near future coming. I'm a big sports guy. I was telling the betting courts this morning, it's a rare morning. Miami won, Florida won, Florida State won. For me, Ohio State won. Hey, Steinbrenner won. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm, from a Florida State standpoint, that ain't going to happen. may not happen again the rest of the year. Who knows? But I'm a sports guy, and, and, and we can learn a lot. We can learn a lot about ourselves from sports. You think about these sayings that you hear in sports. Hang in there. It's almost over. Finish strong. Don't leave anything on the court. Give it all you got like there's no tomorrow. Why, why do those sayings exist? Because there's coming a definitive buzzer. In just a moment, there's going to be a buzzer, and the game is going to be over. And when that game ends, it's over. So to leave something in the tank, to have something left in the reservoir to hold back. You know what? You know what you're saying? It's foolish. Why? Because the game is over. There's a definitive amount of time in which that game exists. There is a definitive amount of time until Christ is coming back. You know what he's saying? Live in light of that fact. Allow that thinking. You know, at, at the end of football games, you know, you, or basketball games or whatever, you hear commentators sometimes say about coaches or players, they had poor clock management. They didn't manage the amount of time they had left to maximize it. Here's what Peter's saying, Christian, believer, don't have poor life management. Don't have poor clock management in your own life. Psalm 139 as well, you have been appointed a specific number of days. How are you stewarding them? We don't know the exact day when Christ is coming back, but, but he is coming back. And everything has been appointed to that day and is moving towards that day. Do you believe that? Because you see it there. What a person believes about the future shapes how they live today. You think about that, in a, in a, again, in a sports analogy. If you don't think you can win, 
you, you in that in, in those last closing seconds, you just you 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 don't you don't try. But if you think you can win, you play until that buzzer sounds. What you believe, what you think, affects how you live. If you don't think you can win, you stop trying. I mean, yesterday, the girls' soccer team, the ones that trained in the, in the rain, we lost 8-2. to two. It was real obvious where that game was going real quick. My wife always gives me a hard time. She's like, Chris, when you're getting crushed, you just get real quiet. Like, what do you want me to say to them? Part of his pride, part of his embarrassment, these parents paid. I'm terrible. But listen, if it was 3-2, to two, when it's 3-2, to two, and there's about 30 seconds left and we got the ball... It's a different Chris. When it's 8-2 to two and there's 30 seconds left and we got the ball, do whatever you want with it. It don't matter. <laughs> you can pick it up and throw it for all I care at this point. I don't even care. What you believe, but my point, what you believe shapes how you live. The end is near. That in and of itself, I mean, I thought about this this morning as Daniel led us in singing. Our Savior died, three days later was resurrected. Do you know how absurd that sounds to the world? Unless it's true. The fact that one day he's coming back, do you know how absurd that sounds unless it's true? Does, but stand firm. Peter's saying, look, hang in there. In light of this truth, hang in there, stand firm. And, and what Peter reminds us there, you see it on the handout, is the fact that our sense of value, of self-worth, of identity, it's rooted not in the things of this world, but rather it's rooted in the hope that we have of being born again and that our Savior is coming back. The whole idea, the whole the whole idea of the betrothal in the Jewish culture, that is a picture of. A, a, a really summary of, of, the, of the times that we live in. A, a, a man would go, he would betroth himself to a bride. He would leave and go back to his father's house. He would add a place onto his father's house. And when that was all prepared, while he was doing that, the bride's job was to, to make sure that she was pure, that she was clean, that she, she didn't fall in love with other lovers, that she, didn't have, she wasn't pregnant by other lovers. And, and then that, that groom one day would come back with his, with his groomsmen, and he was, he was hope was that he would find a bride who had been waiting expectantly, who had been purifying herself, who had been seeking to be pure, who was standing at the gates waiting for her groom. Imagine if you were the groom and you came back and you found your bride fooling around with other men or forgot that you even coming back and wasn't ready. Imagine. You say, did you believe me when I say I was coming back for you? Did you not believe me? What Was I not worth waiting for? Are the things of this world so much more attractive than I am? Do we believe that? Because of the resurrection, we're in the final stages of God's redemptive plan. It's not that Peter missed something. It's not that Christ, and because and, Christ hasn't returned and it's been many, many years later. 
All Peter is saying again, they lived knowing that he could return at any moment. And they shaped how they lived in light of that. Whether the New Testament writers would have been surprised or not 2,000 years later that Christ hasn't returned, I think that's somewhat beside the point. What Peter is emphasizing is that we're in the last stage of God's redemptive process, and we are to shape our thinking that way. We're in the last stage. And it starts with a mindset. Any moment. And Christ is coming any moment to judge the world. No person is exempt. We are to be an alternate society. We are to be found waiting expectantly if he returns. And he's coming back one day to judge not only us, but to judge the entire world. And you see, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a reality with a scope that touches everyone and everything on the planet. No person is exempt from his judgment. So not only are we to prepare ourselves, we're to share a gospel with a lost world so that they can be prepared to stand and meet their Savior. And, and the first evidence, you say, well, Chris, how do, I, how do I know if I have this mindset? The first evidence, he says, is about your prayer life. You know what, prayer, he says, again, the first evidence is praying. Why? Because it shows that you have a mind to the things of God, not the things of this world. It's not fatalism. Living with, an, living with the end in mind of knowing that he's returning, it's not fatalism. It's not a let go and let God mentality. It's not isolationism. It doesn't lead to abandoning our responsibilities. It doesn't mean to banding our relationships with others. It leads to prayer. Why prayer? Because prayer more than anything else would seem to accurately reflect our hearts and our minds. Rather than panic, Pray. Why? Because we're held by the one who's in control. Just like we sang, I am who you say I am. And we allow that reality to shape our lives. Prayer really is a, is a confession that I am submitting God to your reality and not my own reality or what the world says. I'm submitting to your reality. I'm submitting to your lordship. I'm submitting to your resources, not my own. And again, you have a mind, a mind that is focused on the end. All the range of emotions, again, in, 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 especially in persecution, Peter's believers are being persecuted. And maybe some of us today have come in here and are being persecuted. And all the range of emotions that go with tribulation and trials, they cause us to lose our, our focus and they can give us an obscure, a kind of an obscured, skewed vision of reality with regards to our future, with regards to the promises of God, with regards to the victory of Jesus' resurrection. And, and that can lead to behaviors and discussions and, and ways of life that are contrary to God's word. And what he's saying is no matter what you face, pray. In light of a certain future, pray. Why? Because prayerfulness clears our mind of all the lies and it focuses, on the, focuses us on the truth of God's word and his promises. Again, enable us to stand firm. So the question becomes this, what, what, what might your prayer life indicate about your hope? What might your prayer life indicate about how you view the end being near or not? Is there a sense of urgency? If Jesus came back right now, would he find his bride exclusively waiting for his return or have we become distracted 
with other loves. May, would he find that our minds have become so earthly focused that we don't pray? Why? Because our, we got everything we need. His return may, for some of us, be a, an interruption of our plans, not a fulfillment. The end is near. Verse 8, he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. In the light of the very near and certain future, believers are commanded to shape how they love each other based on this. Not not only how you think, how you love. How you love one another is based on this, this near and certain future. And especially in tribulation. What's the temptation, what's the tendency in tribulation for our love for one another? What happens to it? It wanes. Grows cold, especially to the one who's persecuting us. We tend to get hunkered down. We tend to crawl up in our shell. We tend to become self-focused instead of others-focused. So these are very real, applicable words to Peter's readers. In in light of your tribulation, even in the midst of it, you know what he says? And that's in your handout. Remain fervent in your love for one another. Why? Because relationships matter. If we're really resolved that what he says is true, if we're going to allow that resolve to shape how we live, even in tribulation, we must remain fervent in our love for one another. And, and again, truth and love, they go hand in hand. You can't have truth without the loving of one another. Paul, even in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, he says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Paul didn't just give them the gospel, he gave them his life. 1 Corinthians 13, if we do all we do, but we don't have love, we're a noisy symbol, it's just a clanging gong. The, the word here for love is agape, it's a choice to love the person regardless of, of their worth, regardless of whether they deserve it. It's not based upon their value. It's not based upon their worth. It's not based upon what you can get in return. It's based on a command. I'm going to do it in faith. And I'm going to remain fervent. And what Peter is saying is that believers are called to a love that persists despite difficulties. And and what he does here is he quotes Proverb 10, 12. And listen to Proverb 10, 12 with me just, just for a moment. You can write it in the, in the, whatever that's called, the margin of your notes there. He says, in Proverbs 10, 12, the writer says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Th- this was a very common proverb in Peter's day. What he's teaching you is that love is the opposite of hatred. What love does to sin is the total opposite to what hatred for the other person does to sin. Hatred does what? Hatred stirs it up. You know what love does? Love covers it up. And I don't mean cover it up in in an unhealthy way. What happens to a fire if you deprive it of oxygen? If you stop feeding it oxygen and wood? It goes out. We read it the other day. I came across this proverb a little while back. I shared it in the context. And, and it's become one of my favorite just in shaping my mindset trying to. In Proverbs 26.20, listen to what he says. 
For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. You know what gossip does to strife? Stirs it up, feeds it, fuels it. In the illustration of Proverbs 26, 20, it's like putting another log on the fire and then wondering, why is that thing going out? Because you just put another log on it. And you know what? That, that log's got to burn out. There's a time where that log is just going to have to burn out. And every uh, gossiping and backbiting and all this stuff, listen, we're putting, we're putting logs on the fire. You know what love does? Love stops putting logs on the fire. What Peter is saying is that it intentionally, love intentionally seeks to disallow wrongs to, to reach their fullest, most harmful conclusion. That's what he's saying by love covers a multitude of sins. It squashes it before it gets out of hand. It's like realizing you have a cancer in one part of your body and you cut it out before it spreads. That's what he's saying here. When, when someone wrongs you or hurts you, you don't retaliate. You don't gossip about it. Again, and that brings the issue to a conclusion quicker. Even in 2.1, he says, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, we put it aside. Again, he's not saying the church should ignore or cover, uh, ignore sin or falsely cover it up. We got to deal with it, but how we deal with it is governed by love. It's governed by the other's well-being, even that other who hurt you. Why? Because the community is bigger than the one. And our testimony before a watching world is more important than the one. And the goal here behind this, you see it on your handout, is to promote unity. Promote unity. Listen, you get, you get more than one person in a room and they do life together, guess what's going to happen? Conflict. Our marriages, think about it, I mean, not to be, not to be weird, but our, our marriages are like two rabid dogs in a cage, and you're like, why did that joker bite? Because there's two wild dogs in a cage. Somebody's going to get bit eventually. You look, you're going to hurt the person. You're going to hurt your spouse. They're going to hurt you. We do life together here in church long enough. Listen to me. I'm going to disappoint you. You're going to disappoint me. How do we respond when that happens? That's what he's talking about. And, and this is to be done above all. Above all. Standing firm on God's grace, forgiving one another. Above all. Peter teaches us there, you see it on your handout, that, that in order for the Christian community to survive, there needs to be a willingness and ability to fervently love and to forgive, to deal with sin quickly. I mean, think about how many churches have split because they just couldn't deal with, they couldn't forgive one another. And, and you think about what's the world's perception of, of the body of Christ and Christ himself when, when we're not able to forgive one another. Think about the perception there. Especially when these things are trivial, like dancing and food and drink and clothes. Churches split all the time, music style. This is why we have Fellowship 3, why we have First Sunday Supper, why we have game nights like we had last night, to promote love, to promote unity, to promote relationships, to teach us to love people that are different than us. Are Fellowship 3's hard sometimes? Yeah, that's the point. Anybody can love people that are easy. Anybody can love themselves. 
The glory of Christ is the body learning to love people that are different than them, that are hard to love. Because, by the way, people think you're hard to love. I guarantee you, 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 you you're, you're thinking right now of a couple people in here that are hard to love, and guess what? You're on somebody else's list as well, probably. And I might be on all the lists. I don't know. But, but in, our, and in our day, we don't, we don't grasp the urgency of what Peter is saying here. Because think about this. In Peter's day, there wasn't a Baptist church or there wasn't a solid church on every corner. There was one in every city, maybe. You get your feathers ruffled, you get offended. Guess what? You had to work it out. Nowadays, you know what we do? We just, we just go down the street. And what Peter is saying, and what I would tell you, if we'll, if we'll grasp the weight of that, when we do that, we never learn to love when it's hard. We never learn to forgive. We never learn to do the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation. And, and we never grow. And the body of Christ is weaker. The strength comes from our ability to forgive and to love, even when it's hard. There's strength there. The Bible doesn't command uniformity. We like uniformity. The Bible commands love and unity amongst diversity. That's hard. And how do we deal with, our, how do we deal with the hurts? I think that's why pastors, no pa pastors, they only stay places a couple years. Because listen, after a couple years, the honeymoon's, the honeymoon's over, and you're going to realize what you've got as a pastor. You're going to realize he ain't perfect. You're going to realize he has faults. One of the, again, one of the hardest things to do each week is to stand up here and preach the word of God knowing that you guys know flaws and faults and that I'm woefully imperfect. And, and, and I, I can recall there was a time where, again, there's this idea where you want, I, you'd want people to think you're perfect. Even though you know they know you're not, you want them to think because you have a high standard. And I, I can remember getting a phone call from somebody about an opportunity somewhere else. And, and you know what? One of the, sinfully, one of the things that appealed to me was just the idea of starting over. The idea to just go somewhere and start over where nobody would know me, nobody would know my flaws, nobody would know my shortcomings, nobody would know failures and all that stuff, and I could just start over and enjoy that honeymoon phase. You know what the Lord told me? In about two years, you're going to be right where you are today. They're going to figure you out, Chris. I mean, we never, ever gave it a moment of consideration. Never. But there was an appeal to this facade. But that's not real life. Real life is that we hurt each other. Real life is we've got to learn how to forgive each other. If we're going to be impactful in a community, it's not just running around to, these, to, to act like we're something we're not. We need to fervently love one another. Again, John 13, 34, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That's the badge. That's the distinguishing mark. The question becomes, do you and I love this way? How do you tend to respond when you get hurt? Do you rub it in or do you rub it out? Do you try to cover up sin or do you expose sin? Do you, do you run and hide or do you stay in love? In light of that, in light of the end is near, Peter is saying, look, do the hard things, persist. Hold tight, stand firm in grace, the end is near. 
The end is near. And again, that fuels our fervency to our love. But not only in, does he say again, think right and love, think in light of the end is near, love in light of the end of the year, the end is near. Verses nine, verse nine says, serve as if the end is near. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. I mean, grasp how this ties together. First, we re, first we renew our minds, learn to think right. Then we learn to love, and naturally, listen, we naturally serve those whom we love. The underlying issue in most of the issues that we deal with in a church, listen to me, is a lack of love. It's not the other person's actions. It's not all these other facades that we put. It's a lack of love. I've noticed this about my own life. When I truly love somebody, I'll go to the ends of the earth to make it right. I'll lay anything down if I really love them. I've watched movies because my kids wanted to watch movies. Last night, listen to me, Ohio State is playing Penn State. The, we turned it off and Sarah Grace watched Descendants. Now, I happen to love Descendants, so it wasn't totally sacrificial. But why did I do that for Sarah Grace? Because I love her. And you know what I thought about last night? Because there's an end, and the end is near there too. You know what? There's coming a day where Sarah Grace is moving out of my home. I have a very finite amount of time to enjoy Sarah Grace and Bradley Cooper as my children as they are today. Do I want them moving out saying that a ball game was more important to me? was more important to my dad than sitting on the couch and watching a movie? You li live, think. She's moving out. Bradley's moving out. He asked me the other day what kind of car he was getting when he was 16. I'm like, what in the world? Brother, calm down. Finish eighth grade first. But do you see the point? If we forget that there's coming a day where, look, we have a finite amount of time with our kids as they currently are. You think about that with the terms of the gospel, in terms of the Bible, in terms of discipleship. And it changes how we serve. And, and again, in, in this context, understand that that the fellow believers were all each other had. And the primary way that this was shown was through hospitality. It was opening up their homes. Travelers would go from town to town. Believers moving. To, they, had, they didn't have motels everywhere. They, they had to rely on one another. They regularly welcomed other believers into their homes for overnight stays. This was the, a practical, mutual way of showing love and of serving Strangers, all that they shared was the gospel, and they, would, they, they welcomed them. Now, I understand days and times, but, but listen, how do you treat your home? When's the last time you had a neighbor in your home? When's the last time you had another member of this congregation in your home? That's the point of Fellowship 3 as well. 
Are we known for how we serve? Again, it went it, it went beyond just opening up their home, but but it would have been it could have even been opening up their home to host a worship gathering, knowing that they were going to be persecuted. How do we treat our homes? Are they our castles or are they God's castles? How are we stewarding them? What Peter is saying, and you see it in the handout, is that believers were to live with an open hand and heart towards one another. Why? Because the end was near. There's coming a day. He's returning. He's coming. How, how do I want him to find me living when he returns? Listen to Proverbs 3.27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do you have the resources? Do it. Why? The end is near. And the church is meant to be a refuge. Where those that are shunned by this world and, and put off, by, they can come and find refuge. And, and believers who have been persecuted, they come here and they find refuge from the things of the world. Not the same as they find in the world. You say, how would this look today? It could be like in the past, opening up your home during a hurricane. We did that. We had families here that did that. I was so blessed by that. It could be fostering. It could be funerals and how we support one another. It could be uh, Steve Hockmeister's father died. How do, we, how do we respond to that? Funerals Wednesday. Do we support them? Sicknesses and trials, when those, when those meal sign-ups go around, do they linger? I mean, a church of this size, by the world's standards, I know compared to some of us and where we've been, we're small, but compared to the world's standards, we're a large church. Most churches in Florida have, no, have less than 80 members at them. No reason in a church of this size that that meal list shouldn't be filled up like that. No reason that they should be begging. Hey, I missed the meal list. Can I bring them an extra meal? Of course you can. It's about a testimony. It's about declaring the excellencies of our God. Why? Because the, day, the time is short. Needs come up. Do you need six months to plan for a need? Or do you steward your life so that at a drop of a hat you can meet the need? Needs don't give you six months warning. Hey, you know what, Bill, in six months I'm going to need you to, to help me out. So can you start planning for that now? That's not the way it works. We're to steward our lives so that at any moment we can help one another out. That's the feeling there. Steward your life. Live with a margin so that with an end in mind that you can serve. Not only think rightly, not only love rightly, not only serve rightly, but lastly in verses 10 and 11, he just sums it up and says, live rightly. As each one has received a gift employed in serving others as God's stewards in the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do it as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so who is serving by the strength that God supplies so that in all things God will be glorified through Jesus Christ to him who belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Stewarding your life, you see it on the handout, to, the, to his glory and the good of others. That's weird. Why do you live that way? Because I want to glorify God and I want to be able to serve others, huh? Huh? 
limiting our lifestyle, limiting our freedoms. Why? To the good of others. The good of the body. And we, we just studied Colossians, Colossians 3.17. He says, he says almost the same thing. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Even in, even in, he talks about our words, Ephesians 4 29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word that is good for the moment according to the edification of the other person. Deeds, words. What else is there in our lives? Actions and words. You and I, you see it there, are representatives. In every aspect of how we live, you and I are representatives. Of God. Go all the way back to Genesis. We were meant to be represent, representatives. And so I ask you if Christ returned right now, how would he find you living? Selfishly? Selfishly? Sorry, or selflessly? For his glory or your own glory? In 1 John 2, 28, I'll close, he says, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of God. How are you living while you wait? Because God is glorified, listen to me, God is glorified by a people who are willing to bear his name, even though doing so jeopardizes their standing in society, their livelihood, and in some cases, their lives. God is glorified by people who will do that in spite of that. Who will stand firm, even though all the circumstances, all the environment, everything around them looks to the contrary. Everything about them says, run, 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 and yet on the grace of God, they can stand. Why? Because they trust the word. They're standing firm in God's grace. Knowing the end is near. Stand firm. Pour ourselves out. Let us be a people who pour ourselves out for the good of others and the glory of God. Don't hold anything back. Do not presume upon tomorrow. Matthew 6 says, Do not worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Trust God who is the shepherd of tomorrow. Who is the creator of tomorrow. James 4 says, Woe to you who say today or tomorrow, or says tomorrow or this day we'll go here and do this and this and this. He says, you do not even know what tomorrow holds. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Shepherd today to the glory of God. 